everybody. Welcome to Glitchy Pancakes, real talk about the world of fandom. I'm Jesse. And I'm Rob. And today we want to just dive headfirst into a really complex and a pretty fraught topic, problematic favorites. Um, what we mean by that is Ooh. people who have created works like books, films, art, etc., that we might personally love or have enjoyed in the past, or that are maybe works that are considered good or great or even considered classic or canon. But these same people have also exhibited just unacceptably bad behaviors, bad views, racism, misogyny, etc. So it broke our hearts. How, right. It's happened so many times. So and so the question that we're left with is how do we engage with their work? Or do we think do we engage with it at all? Um so to discuss this with us today, we have an award-winning multi-genre author, Columbia University professor. His books include, um, among others, uh, his novels The Changeling and The Devil in Silver, his short story collection Slapboxing with Jesus, one of my favorite titles ever. Which you got the, it, yes. Oh, man. <laughs> the novella The Ballad of Black Tom, which I finished recently and absolutely blew my mind, and uh, the comic book Destroyer, which I haven't had a chance to look at yet, but now I have to after finishing that last book. His list of comic awards books? and wins and nominations is just it's too long for us to read off all the awards that victor <laughs> laval has won uh, but it includes the world fantasy award british world fantasy award bram stoker award guggenheim fellowship shirley jackson award twice i believe the american book award not to mention hugo and nebula nominations it's uh just it's a ridiculous list and a wonderful body of work uh victor laval welcome Hey, thank you for having me. I'm real happy to be here. Cool, cool. Yeah, thanks for uh, coming on to talk about this. We had uh, some specific reasons for that that you um, stood out to us as somebody who could speak on this topic of problematic <laughs> favorites, um, especially after reading The Ballad of Black Tom. I think, um, Rob, you had a question to kind of as an entry point into this discussion, didn't you? I did. I did. Um, if you don't mind, could you please explain to our readers The Ballad of Black Tom in your own words in case they haven't read it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, The Battle of Black Tom is a novella uh, that is a kind of riff or reimagining on one of H.P. Lovecraft's uh, most famously xenophobic racist uh, stories, The Horror at Red Hook. Um, and what I decided to do was uh, I grew up on Lovecraft, loved him as a kid, uh, hated him as a young adult, uh, and then came to something in between the two as an adult. Um, and, uh, I felt like I wanted to take apart this one story in particular because I thought it was, uh, um, there was room for me to sort of take it apart and look inside it a little bit and see if there might not be a story about the kind of people that the original dismissed as merely evil or, sh or shifty or swarthy, uh, mm -hmm. um, swarthy, I might, that word. yeah, that he loves that word. Um, uh, I might find a way to tell a deeper and more personal and more profound story than Lovecraft was able to, if I just sort of mm. like moved the angle of the camera a little bit. Right. Right. Now, when, when you decided to write this story, um, was the choice of Lovecraft is a story retelling based on the extremely racist personal history or was it more of a story that you liked but wanted to tell from a different perspective. I know we covered that a little bit, but I just wanted to know specifically, like, what was it that attracted you to to wanting to dissect that particular story? 
Well, the truth of it is, um, uh, so first thing is like, a, it was, I think I wrote it in 2015 over the summer of 2015. Um, and I had, uh, uh, just as a little background, I had just finished up my novel, The Changeling, like, a, 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 and I was, and I sent it off to my editor, uh, waiting for notes, but sometimes, you know, uh, what kind of happens like you, when I've like finished a novel and I, it's like a, a draft that I felt strong about, it's kind of like being in really in your best shape mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, feeling like, uh, well, I just ran this marathon. Maybe I wouldn't mind running a quick sprint. Because I'm in, I'm in shape. I got energy, um, right. and so I knew I wanted to write a little thing uh, while I waited for the. Also, as a way to sort of maybe um, handle the anxiety of waiting to hear if the editor thought it was good, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, and so I was just casting around for like um, for something to do, something to write, and that I wish I could remember exactly who it was that summer, but it was. Um, there was an, another uh, black person was murdered by the police. I can't remember mm-hmm. if it was Eric Garner or someone else, mm-hmm. um, but I was feeling pretty upset about that. Um, and while certainly like joining protests and things like that were uh, uh, valid and uh, things that I that my wife and I sort of uh, joined in, I felt like, um, is there some other way I can sort of uh, use my voice in protest? And I thought like, oh, okay, what I want to do is I want to write like the old tradition, write your protest, right? Use your voice on the page. Uh, And I started casting around for a book or a story that I might play with for this energy, right? Right. Um, And uh, one of my favorite books uh, from graduate school, I think, is a novel called Wide Sargasso Sea by a writer named uh, Gene Reese. Um, okay. And part of the re- it's a very short novel, but part of the reason I love it is because um, she was from the Caribbean. She's a white woman from the Caribbean, but she grew up in the Caribbean. Um, and whenever she read Jane Eyre, there's a just a little me- like it's not a huge part of the book, but the 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 man who the who Jane Eyre is going to marry eventually, he has a first wife who he keeps up in the attic of his Brit- of his home, and she's a mad woman. Uh, and she, she uh, essentially, and he, he met, he married her in the Caribbean and, uh, she really only exists to be this sort of scary first wife. And she kind of, and she dies at the end in a very sort of ugly and demeaning way. Right. And so, uh, Jean Reese wrote this novel, Wide Sargasso Sea, because she, in the, I want to say in the sixties maybe. And she, because she said, I think I know the story of that woman. And I believe right. she was driven mad by being forced by this British dude to come to America, to, to England um, right. and being kept up in an attic. And I want to tell her story. And she, she wrote a classic oh, yeah, of it is. Uh, English literature uh, as a result. And, um, and I kind of felt like, oh, maybe I could do a wide Sargasso Sea. And Lovecraft, because he was one of my formative writers, became that, that person for me. Right. I see. Okay, so that's really interesting that you took that. Um, so it sounds like what you're saying is that you you the concept of writing a response um, to to something that you thought needed another side. You know, like you said, moving the camera lens or telling it from a different lens. You had that concept in mind already. Not so much as like you read the Lovecraft story and thought I have to respond to this story specifically. But right. you had the concept and you went to Lovecraft because he was a formative writer of yours. And there's clearly some stuff that could be worked with uh, in Lovecraft that could be and should be told from a different perspective. 
Yeah, like uh, I, so I cast about to a number of the writers who I uh, who were you know like those formative particularly horror writers. So it was Lovecraft, it was Stephen King, it was Clive Barker, mm-hmm. Shirley Jackson, uh, Angela Carter. These writers who I really read and loved when I was you know uh, ten, twelve, thirteen, uh, and they got into my blood. Uh, but of all of those writers, the only one who had a piece that or who had pieces that I felt like. Uh, were so thoroughly unexamined in their mm-hmm. prejudices, like on the page, uh, was Lovecraft, right? Like even the others are modern right. enough that on some level, either they are wrestling with what they what are their conf- conflicted feelings or they know enough to keep that stuff off the page. Right. right? right, right. <laughs> they are smart enough to understand. Lovecraft was racist for his time. and that's Right. Like, even for right. his time. That's right. Even that's for right. his time. Right. And so yeah, then I was impressive. reading... <laughs> is, is that's right uh but so i was reading through a number of lovecraft stories and i to be totally blunt uh um i knew i wanted to wrestle with one of his stories but like i read through his like new england stories and i knew i couldn't mess with those because i knew he knew new england and rhode island right. better than i ever would mm, so okay. i was sort of like i can't see the opening here right right you know? i can see that um like i don't know what he's getting wrong kind of thing right Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm from New York, yeah. and I read the horror at Red Hook, and I said, this is supposedly set in Brooklyn, but this is not Brooklyn. This right. is like some Martian version of Brooklyn that is oh. like planet racist. Yeah, uh, that's like that's right. perfect because then it gives not only gives you your opening, but it actually positions you as more of an expert on, the, on exactly. where he was trying on to talk area. about than right. he was to begin Exactly. Because you're a right. lifelong that was, New Yorker, right? That's right. Born and raised in Queens. And then now I live in Washington Heights in Manhattan. Um, Like I knew hands down, uh, there's no way he's going to mess with me on New York. Right. right? No, no, Uh, definitely not. And, but the nice thing about that was that gave me the confidence to say that maybe I could mess with him about the other stuff, Uh, you know, Uh, because, you know, (laughs) but like, you you know, going up against the leg, it's like, you know, you, you're, 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 one of your grandparents is the best card player in the family. You don't just one day at the picnic say, I'm taking you on. Right. In the game. You train, you take some time. Maybe you introduce a new card game. They don't know that well. And then you say, (laughs) now I got you. (laughs) Or you write a damn good book. You're feeling good and you go ahead and it's a tag. That's right. right. That's right. right. I feel like I need to make myself a personal note not to play cards against Victor Laval. I'm right. Yeah. Now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I do yeah, plan out things. I do plan. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to keep that in mind. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I mean, Lovecraft was definitely one of the, he was one of the hugely problematic ones, even in his own time. And that's any, but even until recently, like I think that was a great choice to uh, to attack the way he was doing things. And you really did. I mean, I'll I'll just be blunt. I read uh, all of his old stuff. And when I finished the Ballad of Black Tom, one of the first things I thought was that was better than the original story. Like by a like yeah. it was it was more enjoyable and like and I got more out of it and it affected me more deeply in terms of like right. what you want a horror story to do. I mean, just get just white knuckling my way my way all the way through the reading in a way that Lovecraft right. never did. And so Thank just you. yeah, no, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, but he, but still, you know, despite people knowing his extremely racist history. He still got uh, what was there was an award which until recently was a bust of Lovecraft. What, I don't remember the, I don't the World remember Fantasy. What. Yeah, World Fantasy yeah. Award was a bust of Lovecraft. Yeah. They've yeah. changed that um, and a couple other awards with for uh, that were named after people that um, 
you know, had some some real problems in their histories have been changed too. He probably heard about the uh, the Campbell Award for Best New Writer yes. being changed after uh, Jeanette mm. Ng's speech that she made just straight up called out John Campbell for despite having made, you know, significant contributions to blah, 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 to, to the industry as an editor, really awful guy. Um, and they yeah, changed so the yeah, award pretty much on the spot. Fascist. Yeah. Right. And they just, so they changed the award right on the spot. So that, that kind of brings us around to the question of like, where, how do we engage with people's work? <laughs> that is because there's always this question of separating the art from the artist, which it's debatable whether that's even really possible. And it's everyone is questioning how they should engage with the work of bad people in a way that, that does acknowledge their flaws and respects the people that those flaws have harmed. Or should we just not, you know, I mean, it's got to be kind of a case by case basis, but um, I noticed in, in the um, the dedication to the Ballad of Black Tom, you mentioned your conflicting feelings about Lovecraft, how he was a yes. formative writer for you, yet clearly problematic. Uh, so I was wondering what thoughts you might have about how, how did you continue to engage with his work and how do you, how do you think, is there a way that fans can look at the work of, of people who have really bad histories in terms of should they continue to enjoy those things? Should they, should, how should they talk about it? Right. Well, I mean, you know, I, I have to admit, I'm, um, I'm not a fan of the, uh, separating the art from the artist, uh, idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm not a fan largely because I think that's a great way to avoid having to talk about right. what is in, because almost inevitably the artist, I mean, I'm not in almost in every case, in the, the artist movie. made the art. Right. right. And right. Uh, in almost every case, the things that the artist thought or believed filters into the work. Right. Correct. And uh, that doesn't have to be uh, a, a reason to then throw a thing away. It's more like, a, you know, more very, very recently, there's been a couple TV shows that said they are no longer going to show their uh, blackface episodes. T uh, 30 Rock did that. Uh, mm -hmm. I can't Golden remember who Girls. else. Golden Girls. Yes. Golden Girls others. did it. Yeah. But. Um, I appreciate the, the folks who are making the point that like, uh, you know, the issue with the idea of blackface is not that, uh, Jenna Maroney or, uh, I'm trying to remember one of the, uh, actresses on the show is on the golden girls, um, is Rue McClanahan. The point is not to say we shouldn't see her doing this thing. Uh, I think the point instead would be to say, um, and maybe these shows are not the way to do that, but to say like, well, let's talk about how or why this was considered popular entertainment and right. why that could still be a joke a hundred years later that everybody gets. Right. Um, and then what is the equivalent of like, what's modern day blackface? Is it white actors mm -hmm. doing black cartoon characters? Maybe. Mm. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I would like to think that people could do whatever, blah, blah, blah. But, um, Erasing things or like making that separation, I think, is a way to do that thing that if I can speak in like the – maybe it's all human beings, but I'm just going to say broadly speaking that uh, um, a lot of white Americans like to do, which is to say at Thanksgiving, I'm not – grandma's going to walk in with a giant Trump poster and talk about how much she hates Cambodians. Mm -hmm. And the way I'm going to deal with that is I'm not going to say anything about it. Right. Right. And I'm just going to get through this time. And you sort of say like, well, 
now grandma thinks what she said is okay in this house, in this family. Uh, And maybe importantly, like she doesn't even know what she's saying hurts her kid or her grandkid, you know? And like, I'm not even saying like there's a Cambodian family member, but I think it can be profound when someone, like when our kids, my wife and I have two young kids, seven and nine, and they're like this morning um, over summer break now, uh, my kids really don't like me because um, I make them come with me to the park when I go on a jog. Right. Each morning, this is their chance to get out of the house, but I get time with them. Um, and uh, my son, my older son, uh, was being particularly pissy about it uh, mm-hmm. this morning. And then I said, what's the issue? Uh, you know we got to do this, and this is how you earn some iPad time during the morning. And you know, we made a deal. And he said, but I just don't like the way you, you told me to get ready. Like you were already talking to me spicy. He didn't uh-huh. say spicy, but that's what he meant, right? Uh, right. And I and it was a moment of me realizing, like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings like that. Right. I'm sorry. I wasn't thinking. I was just in a hurry to get out of the house with these two kids and go jogging because, uh, in quarantine, I've been all uh, haven't been moving my body. Right. And I use that to just say, at those Thanksgiving dinners, maybe there's some value in saying to grandma. I don't like the way you talk about Cambodians. Right. I, I absolutely agree with that. You know. that's, uh, that, and that's something that uh, – I mean I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly because that, that's something that I'm thankfully seeing a bit of a change. I'm, I'm seeing more of my white friends in particular step up lately and yeah. be willing to do that because the reason that they that there's been such unwillingness to confront friends and family or to do so publicly or to really take a strong stance on it in the past, I think is because they it was going to be uncomfortable and mm-hmm. it was going to be more uncomfortable than just not doing anything. They, they had the option. They had the option to say nothing. And just, you know, as soon as, soon as grandma's done with her rant, then we'll just move on to the pumpkin pie and we'll, you know, and they don't have to actually face it lately. I'm seeing a lot more people being angry to the point and realizing no, this is we have to confront this within our own house, and we have to do it publicly. We have to do it strongly, and I guess as that relates to like the the, the art, the writing, and everything of, of people that have those those kind of histories. I suppose it's the same thing. You're right. Like you can't I mean, you you might not kick grandma out of your house, but you need to say something. Well, I, I think it's yeah. it's important for us to um to to view all that stuff with critical eyes, right? I mean, that's, that's the, that's the point, even ourselves, like, like Victor said, Absolutely. I, I, I do the same thing with my kids. And sometimes I have to check myself and go, you know, Hey, maybe I am not approaching them in that type of way, which, which leads to me doing that in my everyday life on a regular basis. So it teach me something in that point. But like he was saying as well, if we, if we're able to get people to not say that, Hey, I'm not racist, but to just say, Hey, I am anti-racist or anti-bigoted that's the that's the point and let people know like victor said that that's uncomfortable you're making me uncomfortable by saying that and i don't appreciate or approve of that type of of language Mm -hmm. i i mean i think that to my mind like that is the the, um in some way the beginning of wrestling i mean because you know obviously i know uh because i hear from folks here and there there are some families where i mean it is true like saying that kind of thing maybe grandma really won't speak to you again which is its mm-hmm. own horrifying reality right yeah. 
Although, if I'm being frank, I, be, I guess I would say like, well, if grandma wouldn't talk to you over that, like, what's the right. point of talking to grandma? Uh, personally, right. that would be my take because then you have to hide everything about yourself yeah. uh, right. to be with this person. But maybe sometimes I also think maybe there's room for grant. <clears throat> you don't know. You don't know if grandma or grandpa or uncle or aunt or whoever. You don't know if there's room for them to change if you never give them the chance. Right. You know, to, to just to hear it. Uh, like if they never hear it, then what, you know, and in that way to lead it back, like in a way to Lovecraft, let's say as, <clears throat> as a problematic writer, um, one of the things that was really very funny to me was uh, completely without my knowing it, um, me and a writer named Matt Ruff, he published a novel called, uh, a book called Lovecraft Country, um, <clears throat> uh, which is like a series of uh, like really like stories or vignettes episodes about a black family who essentially get pulled into a kind of Lovecraftian universe. It's not really riffing on one story as much as it is on sort of uh, racism and, and all that uh, in a certain time period, but with Lovecraftian elements. But we published that, like oh, that book came out the same exact day as Bow to Black Tom. Wow. Mm. Totally unrelated. Wow. We didn't know each other at all at that point. <laughs> That's We've amazing. since become friends. Um, uh, <laughs> and uh, it, was a, it was a funny moment of feeling like, so there was that. Then there was the push to get rid of the, uh, the bust of Lovecraft for the world fantasy. And there was this way they started to feel like all these things bubbling up almost in the same three, four, five months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it almost felt like, okay, maybe we're able to – Maybe we're ready to have this conversation about this person right, now, right? Right. Uh, and now I feel like now the the people who seem the most sort of like uh, sort of left behind are the ones who refuse to consider or have any conversation about Lovecraft mm-hmm. as a problematic writer, even if they don't agree. Like the idea, there are some people who just say like, "I don't want to hear about that. It's just mm-hmm. not true." He's a person of his time, and the books are the, the stories of the stories. And it almost feels like, uh, you know, like uh, somebody who uh, still rides a horse and buggy. When yeah, I hear it, you know, it's a re- it's a real head in the sand reaction. Like they're, they're yes, um, and it does. And people are facing being, you know, ostracized by their their you know fan communities and friends and things like that who are into these types of things. You know, th- if they're the ones, like you said, they're now in the minority as people who <laughs> refuse to address these topics and refuse to have a conversation about them. Um, and you make a good point about that, that people should have the opportunity to like, maybe they haven't been confronted with whatever it is. Maybe grandma's never heard that talking about Cambodians this way is not acceptable. Maybe a Lovecraft fan hasn't heard who he actually was as a person and who knows how they'll, re- I mean, their initial reaction might be a knee jerk, you know, yes. discomfort with it, right. but a little bit of attempt to actually discuss it with them might open them up a little bit. I mean, I think we've probably all seen that happen to people before who were, who are genuinely surprised. Oh, I didn't know that about this person. That's disappointing. I'm going to have to reevaluate, you know, and not necessarily reevaluate. I don't have to go burn their books in the backyard, but I'm going to keep this in mind next time I go and read, uh, you know, something from the Cthulhu mythos, mythos or whatever. Like next time I approach it, I got to do it with a different set of eyes. And mm-hmm. I think we give, give people that chance at least. Uh, I mean, I, I can see that working as long as people are going to be open to it. Some of them just won't. And some won't, right? Like, I mean, but that's right. the same as uh, like, a, there's no chance everybody's ever going to be on board with anything. 
Like you can't get everybody. Uh, but I do like to think that they're like, there are those people who, as soon as they understand it, they say, um, all right, like this is a problem and we got to talk about it. And then there's the middle, the, the middle patch who are the sort of, uh, it hurts. It hurts and surprises me. I don't know how I feel about this. And then I always feel like, well, just take your time. When we come back around, maybe we talk about this. And like you said, uh, I think, uh, Jesse, like, a um, suddenly like you read the same story and you can't ignore the things that are there, right? right. Like uh, Lovecraft has a story called um, Herbert West Reanimator, um, mm-hmm. which is essentially just about a guy who learns how to bring people back from the dead. Um, but there's a section before he essentially succeeds, there's like a middle step where um, he gets hold of a black boxer's body who died, I think, in the ring, maybe, or something like that. And he re- reanimates the black boxer. And then when you read what it, the descriptions of the, the reanimated black boxer, he literally calls him ape-like and Ugh. the dark thisness. But the crazy thing is, I really think, like, um, for a lot of readers, there's a natural instinct to gloss over the failings of someone you love. Like, I it just agree. is the case. And so, as a result... Like they just kind of, it's almost like a like a glitch in the matrix or something like that. It's like, you know, they the the, the term ape-like or some really ugly descriptions there. Somehow they get glossed over because what they remember is like, oh, but later when everything works and it's so creepy, oh, I love that part, you know. Right. But then if you yeah. talk with them about it and all this, then they have to, when they read it again, hopefully they go, uh, sh- uh, that's definitely there. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And sometimes it's it's also not just glossing over the um, the like not just because you want to see what happens or it gets good later or anything, but I think sometimes it happens because you're, you're sort of giving the author the benefit of the doubt and yes. saying, well, this is just a maybe he was he was speaking in the parlance of the times and this was just a choice that he, he this right. is how he had chose to express it from this character's point of view. And yes. it's very easy to explain things away that way. And that's why it's important when you learn about, you know, if you learn that Robert Heinlein was, was very sexist, or if you learned that um, Lovecraft was racist, then you go back and look at it and you're like, oh, okay, well, no, he wasn't just, he wasn't just getting really into the, the mind of this character. He was expressing his own views through this character. Right. Like showing his own biases and his own worldview. And it starts to look really different when that happens. You start to really cringe at some of the, some of the words and, the ways he describes things. Um, but what, you know, but what's also, I think what's nice about that, like when that happens, at least for me, when I'm reading someone who I used to love without reservation and then a few years pass and I come back, I usually think that's also a sign that like, um, you know, like the, the, the sort of like every artist is doing this when they create something, right. They're kind of, they're kind of pitching a worldview. Um, and, uh, to my mind, like the worst thing that could happen is that you think about, you you think a certain way about an artist at 15 and you think the same way about them at 50. Like that's a sign that you have not changed your thinking in it, even if you still love them, but you Mm -hmm. suddenly be like, well, you know, the militaristic culture or the super disturbing, like underage sex with Mm -hmm. children, uh, in the, Mm -hmm. I, I think I got to not uh gloss over that or like uh you know uh or if when you were a kid you didn't understand how disturbing something like that is but then when you're an adult hopefully you go oh that's awful 
Right. That's genuinely awful. I got to think about what this book is trying to pitch <laughs> right. as a right. view about the world. Yeah, and you're right. That that, like, be... given given time and your own maturity, I mean, your, your views on things have to change. If they don't, I guess that is a bit of a red flag, isn't it? Right. And I, but I think the great books really, like, what's amazing about the really great books is when you come back to them, they'll meet you at every age you are. Right. Like, if you let them. Because you just go, oh, I didn't even think this character now, who I always read as the villain, I understand them in a way I never did when I was younger. And that book is well done enough that it lets you have room for that, too. You know, like that, like, that's why I feel like is uh, whatever genre you're talking about, the thing that makes a book a classic is that you can read it at five different ages and it means five different things to you each oh, yeah. time. Right. Oh, well, yeah, we, that's. We, we say the same thing about music too, right? We don't yes, understand a song and we understand it differently at different ages. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I 100% agree. Yeah, <laughs> for some reason this just popped into my head. It's it's on topic but off topic, but like hearing a song differently. I remember there was this country song. I don't know uh, how much you're, you've been subjected to country music living in New York, Victor, but um, we, it's all <laughs> over here, all over. <laughs> Rob, Rob and I uh, grew up in South Georgia, so we, we grew up steeped in it. And there was this song. I don't remember who did it, but it was this old song called "She's in Love with the Boy." Okay. Um, that it was about it's sort of like a love story of this teenage girl defying her parents or, or run off and i heard that you know I was, I was a young teenager and it's a it's a story of star-crossed lovers and following your heart and everything i heard it for the first time in about 20 years not too long ago i'm 40 i got kids and i heard that again and i was like what the heck no listen to your mother she's right this, the boy is trouble like <laughs> you're making a bad decision you need don't follow your heart on this one it's a bad choice. dude this is a bad choice <laughs> I haven't heard that song. I live in the South, but I have not been steeped in crunch. The country that I have been steeped in is is like Southern blues. Ah, uh, okay. It's just like you know stuff like that. I, I, I not really too much country, um, but yeah, 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 yeah. I um, I need to listen to that song so I can find out. <laughs> it'll how it'll bad just it'll just make you angry, man. <laughs> you know, but speaking of like uh, the blues, I mean, one of the things I do love about listening to the blues as an adult is. Like, uh, I just have to like listen to it as maybe if I was a teenager or even in my early 20s, right. not understanding just how lewd mm-hmm. and just wonderful, not all of it, obviously, but the ones right. where you just kind of sit there and be like, she's saying that in 1924? Right. Yeah, she what? Right. too. Like, and she's, you she's, know, like, exactly. And then you, and you know, everyone in that club is just like, that's right. That, that, <laughs> that honey is dripping down your leg. And you'd be like, right. what? <laughs> I mean, oh. it's just blatantly sexual yes. imagery that you can right. hear it. You can hear when you're eight years old, and you're like, "Oh, I think some honey would be good on my breakfast this morning." Like, right. You don't even you don't think about that at all. You're just not there. But, but that's I, one of the one things thing that like, sparked the revolution, right? The sexual revolution was was those particular was those that songs. particular type of music, right? Yes. Those songs, yes, empowerment of sexuality, yes. I wondered about um, Victor in the Ballad of Black Tom. I was curious about uh, this. Was just uh, an interesting thing that, that kept standing out to me. That really gave some depth to uh, to the character of Tommy. That he was, he, you could sort of say he was a blues musician. He had a guitar, um, sure, but he wasn't. 
like he specifically was not very good at it. He he couldn't memorize songs. He wasn't a very good singer. What was what was it in there? I know we're a little off topic from the problematic folks, but where, what was it in there that made you made you want to write him that way, where he was a musician, you know, somewhat steeped in the blues, but but just not very good. Well, I wanted to get at like kind of two things there. Like, and the first thing was, of course, that like uh, at least in my experience, uh, whenever there's specifically a black blues man in a in a story, he's Robert Johnson. He sold his. Yep. He's got all the magic, and so just magic. yes. And so on, just on the level of like overturning the cliche, I was like, oh no, here's a black blues dude, and he sucks. Oh, oh, I you know, see it now. Yes. Like, he's just not actually that good, even though he's got lots of ambition. And I thought on one level that would be pleasantly – like that would jar the reader to be like, huh, okay. I didn't expect that. Right? And <laughs> it, then that's – It does. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's noticeable and it's fun. It's like, and now I get it. That's I knew there was something there. And now I see that. So that does definitely play in with, with this story as a response to Lovecraft because you're taking the, the way that he just continually stereotyped. And yes. you take one of the more common stereotypes, especially from that era or that's known from that era, flip that on its head and make that the main character. And okay. Damn it. Uh, now yeah. I got to reread it. Well, but, and you the other, I felt like the other thing I kind of, the other thing I was trying to uh, get to is sort of like a, he's an artist, but he's not a musician. And it's right. only at the end, like what he's an artist of, at the end is he's an artist of rage yes you know and that's that's the moment like when he like uh everything works for him once he starts to channel that same ambition and power and drive into his vengeance you know if he finds the art through which he can truly express himself yes and that's and that's then, that's a powerful scene right there. Yes, it, was, it is. Uh, <laughs> my wife asked me if something was. She asked if something was wrong because she just glanced over. <laughs> I'm sitting on the couch reading it, and I was at that part, and she was like, "Are you okay?" <laughs> like, "Oh yes, it's just this. Just hang on. I'll, I'll talk to you in a few minutes. I got to finish this." <laughs> that, was, that was a that was a powerful scene. That's <laughs> uh, we, uh, we I recommend it to. Go ahead. Please, no, please, please. Oh, we had a uh, we have these you know for the convention that Rob and I are heavily involved in multiverse. We have these yes. uh, weekly uh, happy hour Zoom calls that we've been doing since the quarantine started to kind of just oh, get that's the community great. together. So I recommended the Ballad of Black Tom a few weeks ago. We always end up throwing recommendations around, and uh, a couple you. people came back on the last call and were just like, "Holy <laughs> shit!" <laughs> they just did not. Right. It was, <laughs> I can't believe it, right? <laughs> yeah so that's that's had a big effect on our, our community's loving that one right now um i appreciate that. Tell you that i mean but to the you know to that end too like even that ending um like there too i just thought like you, you like you know in this kind of story we know what the proper quote unquote or like the conventional end is supposed to be is you know the thing that you hate now at least i hate in superhero movies like or or uh or thrillers like if you if you kill him, you're as bad as as he is. Right. You know. Right. And I'm always just like, be that bad. Kill him. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> kill him. <laughs> He's got to join our Zoom calls. He's got to join our Zoom. Calls. He's got to join our Zoom calls. He's got to join us one night. Yeah. You'll, you'll enjoy yourself. You really will. <laughs> now I like that. I like that approach though, and that's that's always bothered me too. Like I get angry. Because I'm like, no, but this person deserves it, and they're still a danger. Like you can't, that's right. you, you let them off the hook. That's how that's how Lex Luthor ends up escaping next time because you didn't Stop kill his ass the first time. 
Stop putting the Joker in jail, Batman. Just go ahead and end the clown. Kill him. He keeps beating you up with crowbars. You have all these gadgets. You're a billionaire. You get beaten by a crazy <laughs> right. dude with a crowbar. With a crowbar. Go ahead and finish him. But don't you think, like, I feel like that's one of those places where it's the, it's the, the messed up sort of like magic. Of, I mean, to look, I'm not going to go on too big of a screed here, right? But it is the, <laughs> the, the messed up sort of sleight of hand of, of capitalism. Right. right is that the true the true answer to like if the, the what the what should happen is that P- P- uh, Commissioner Gordon, when Batman is right there about to kill Joker, should say, mm-hmm. "We need to uh, we need this character for uh, other um, uh, other storylines in the future and for um, uh, toys and uh, and other things like that." So please don't kill him. Yeah, that's what he should say. <laughs> don't at kill him. Don't kill him off because he still has financial value. He still has financial value. And that should be the end of every fight is this this character has financial value. Please don't get rid of them. Uh, Which is another reason why, uh, what do you call it? Um, Like my older son really loves uh, villains much more than heroes. Right. Uh, Right. And one of his great disappointments is how rarely they win, which is why I really think, I mean, I know Infinity War is the one that sort of like closes the wheel and all this kind of stuff. I mean, Endgame, sorry. Closes the wheel and all that, but Infinity War, my son would argue, and I would argue, is the is the absolute pinnacle of Marvel movies in this first phase, right? Because it was. I just remember sitting in the theater. I can't imagine this is a spoiler for anybody at this point. Right. Um, Right. But when Thanos snaps his fingers, and just when he then sits at that farm, and he just smiles, and then it cuts to the directed by the Russo brothers. The gasp in the audience. Right. And I was like, that's the first time Capital did not win. Right. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's also because they knew Capital was going to kill it. With the next <laughs> right. one. It absolutely yeah. did win. Yeah. But yes. that one, but I loved it. Yeah. I, was, I remember being in the theater and saying, because they're like, they're, they're dusting person after person. Like it's showing you your yes. favorite characters from this whole sequence of movies and just the, the disappointed moans of seeing, you know, various characters, people love you turned into dust. And then there was something, some brilliant about that shot of him just sitting down, not with, you know, not cackling madly, but no. just tired after having right. accomplished That's right. what he thought was a job well done. And a um, little smile. Right. Yeah. Like a job well done. And now I can, it was, it was brilliant. It was. it was. I think it that's was. one of the yeah. best villain moments ever. We got to. We got to do an episode on uh, completely on villains one time. Maybe you should come back for that one. Maybe. Yeah, I would love to. <laughs> yeah, I would we, love we, to. We definitely need to have one on on on, on villains. That'd be like um, a multi-parter. We were talking about that earlier. How cognitive dissonance doesn't apply to people like Victor Von Doom or Lex <laughs> Luthor because they're intelligent. They understand what they're doing is necessary for their not just their real lives but the lives of people that they affect. Specifically, yes. Doom. That's right, I mean, for he, Liberia. He, he runs a great country. <laughs> I mean, you can't touch the country that he runs. And I, yeah, right. I often wish like uh, there was like, um, I mean, they just can't do it, right? But like, uh, I mean, now they're doing those like, uh, those, I mean, I guess it's the equivalent of like the, what is it, Elseworlds? Or I can't remember what the t- yeah. those titles were. Um, but I really feel like there's there's a, a, a whole, like it's a storyline that's been lasting for 10 years that is about... Victor Von Doom and his people like choosing him, like right, not because right. they're scared, because exactly. he takes enough good care of them, and they don't actually care that he's like decimating the rest of the planet. Like it's such a disturbing right. story. It would be such a disturbing right. story about like 
what people are willing, how much evil people are willing to put up with as long as they benefit. Right. Uh, and I can't and see and how can it see would ben- play out here. We yeah, I was going to say play out in our lives. I don't see how that would have anything to do with the current moment. Uh, <laughs> right, right. No but connection. I think right. there might be a way. <laughs> there might be a way. If you draw we'll a connection be. between those two, you're a communist. Yeah, no, it's a dirty <laughs> communist. <laughs> no, that's uh, you're right. Like that is that kind of story is especially. T- I think maybe that's why we're getting more. Uh, nuanced and human villains in in works mm-hmm. like that lately is because you know with the villains I always feel like are a pretty good reflection sometimes a better reflection of the times than the heroes are and right that just seeing more and more villains like uh, Doom and like Thanos who make a point that you can see like you don't agree with it but you can see how some people would like you said Absolutely. like what are people willing to what are people willing to tolerate as long as they benefit and I mean history has shown us damn near anything and they'll, they'll tolerate yes. just about anything they'll tolerate the worst well, things you can imagine if they benefit that's right well and then killmonger was of course uh oh. perfect at that in black panther right. uh mm-hmm. and, you know and then I, I i don't know if they're going to do it but i'm secretly hoping the next wonder woman uh, they have cheetah as the yes. villain and i'm yes. i mean um uh, what's her name? Uh, Kristen Wiig is more than a yes. good enough actor. Uh, oh yes, absolutely. Like I'm really hoping because there was nobody who I loved the first Wonder Woman, but she did not have a single formidable opponent. Right. In that whole right. movie, right? She right. was the whole right. greatness. She was and I, right. I I'm hoping that they pose Cheetah as like an alternative, almost like a well, what if you didn't grow up a princess on a magic island? What would you turn mm. into if you had power? But you also had rage. What would maybe happen? They can, maybe right, they like, can save that for Nubia. Ah, I like that. I like yeah, that. Yeah, which uh, L.L. McKinney is writing. Uh, Victor, I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She, she, um, she was one of our guests last year at Multiverse. Um, L. Oh, okay. Um, she, she, one, one of the best panelists we could have ever hoped for. She brought so much to every one of them. But um, she, she's written or is writing this series, The Nightmare Verse, which is this uh, – it's a retelling basically of the Alice in Wonderland story in modern day Atlanta with a bi black girl as Alice. Really? Um, yeah. It's brilliant stuff. Um, so she's got two, two of the books are out so far. Um, a blade so black and uh, a dream. So dark is number two. The third one's going to be called a crown. So cursed and that's coming out soon. But anyway, she's writing uh, Nubia for DC right now. That hasn't come out. Very yet, nice. but she's okay, I didn't realize that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's some comics to keep an eye on right there. Very nice. Um, right. Yeah. Well, we've got. Uh, I guess we're getting about the time here. I think we've covered the uh, covered a, a decent amount about problematic favorites and, and how to deal with them. Um, I, we had thought about talking a little bit about how how to deal with not just we're mostly dealing with historical ones so far, but yeah. there there are people that are being outed as very problematic currently, like yes, right now for sure. And so. And it's something that people, it hasn't really, the dust hasn't settled yet. Like, I don't feel like the, that fandom has figured out quite how to respond yet to how quickly someone can be, um, as Rob put it when we were talking, uh, deplatformed and and Mm -hmm. boycotted and everything, um, just at the snap of a finger, whenever they come out and do something wrong, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Like how, what, what do you personally think about um, how the reactions that people get um, public figures when they come out as having a particularly problematic set of views or something like that? Well, I mean, you know, on one level I would say um, anybody who wants to stop reading a, a thing, 
should have every right to stop reading a thing, right? Like, uh, right. Like that. I feel like that is a, uh, a, 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 I don't know, God given, a life given, whatever. That is a right that anybody has at any time, and really doesn't even. I mean, I've quite frankly, I've dropped lots of writers just because they were boring as hell. Yeah. Forget about problematic. <laughs> yeah. You know, I dropped L. Ron uh, Hubbard at ten years yes. old. Yes. <laughs> I hate it. Think. Who? Yes. Who? The uh, I'm telling you, like uh, the original uh, cancel culture is this sucks, right? Yeah. So that's right. so you say that, right. and then but then there there's the other step, which is like there's the people who you can't simply like dismiss. They're doing something, mm-hmm. but but then the then who they are behind the scenes. Is something else, and um, I feel like there, there was a great. Um, I saw uh, an interview with uh, George Saunders a couple weeks ago. Maybe it's now. It's a couple months ago, um, uh, and it was uh, he was being asked about like how do you how will you write about like how does anybody write about the pandemic right now? Mm-hmm. Like because there are people trying to write about it and this this and this, and his. Uh, his sort of uh, he was uh, in conversation with a writer named Cheryl Strayed, um, and uh, who did uh, uh, Wild, I believe. Um, and his answer was, he said, like the 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 hard part for the hard thing for writers, and I think this is the same for readers, uh, is that it's our natural desire to sort of want to understand something immediately, right? Right. But yeah. um, but that the human mind can't actually work that way. He said, like when you're falling off a horse, you can't take you can't take down details about what it's like to fall off a horse. You're just trying not to get crushed right. by the fall. Uh, and so he right. was saying uh, during this pandemic, he was just trying to say, don't beat yourself up if you don't understand exactly what you, you're going to do or how you feel or what you're going to write. Instead, he said, just tuck and roll and try to get out safely. And then after you're sure you've survived the fall, then you have a chance to think through uh, what you're doing, you know, what you're going to do next. And I feel right. very similarly like, um, I mean, in a way, uh, like there's no writer now being, can- I mean, the only writer I could think of who could be canceled for if it turned out they were just behind the scenes awful and it would hit me in that sort of down in the place where I first loved reading way, the only one left is really Stephen King. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if it turned out he secretly eats babies or something like that, um, uh, I really would be like, okay, I guess I'm done with this. And then some, but some part of my head would be like, but you know, different seasons is some pretty great novellas. Like there is a part of me that would say that. And then what I would have to do is take a while. Like I would just tell myself, I don't need to have an answer now. Right. Right. Uh, right. If this if this person matters to me, if there's someone who doesn't matter to me on some level, I say like, if you eat babies, uh, honestly, uh, and I didn't love you before, I don't mind not reading you. Right. I'm not going right. to support eating babies. Um, mm-hmm. But if it's the right. older thing, the people who were under my skin early, and I can't just wash it off. I I really just feel like, regardless of what happens on Twitter and blah blah blah, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to think to myself for the next three months, six months, a year. Could I enjoy these books knowing what I know now Right about yeah. that person? And there's it's a, a personal thing, I think. I, mm-hmm. I think so. There, there's a, an article that was on uh, on the Tor website that uh, posed 
four questions for um, it's called four questions to ask when beloved books haven't aged well. And I think yeah. it can be applied to if you find out something about the author. <laughs> so the author goes through the, and this is just kind of one rubric for uh, under, that you could use to approach finding out something like that. Um, and mm-hmm. it goes through four steps, which is, is this a work I can continue to recommend to others is, is the first mm. one. Is it something you want to, to continue to propagate out there? The second one is, is this a work I can continue to enjoy privately? And mm-hmm. to me, that means like I'm never going to be able to take back having enjoyed a book in the past, but I right. can I can start while I'm sorting things out. Like if I take that time, like you said, three months, six months, a year to sort out how I feel about that person, I can stop giving them money in the meantime. Absolutely. Right. My personal thought. Um, and then the third one in that list is, is there another work that doesn't have these problems but occupies the same space? That's an interesting mm. question to me because that's an easy thing. People don't do that work as much as they should, which is, okay, you've right. got a problem with, with Heinlein, go find, you know, go read Ursula Le Guin. You've got a problem with Lovecraft, mm. go read Victor Laval. Um, sure. Yeah. And then there's a... I'll take that. Right. <laughs> and then, yeah, right. And then the, the fourth one is, this is what I think you did with the Ballad of Black Tom. The fourth question on this list, uh, uh, through that progression, can I recommend it to others? Can I enjoy it privately? Is there another work that doesn't have these problems but occupies the same space? Finally, he asks, can I create a work that is corrective to the problematic work I love? Mm-hmm. Which sounds right. a lot. I like I liked the use of that word corrective. Yeah, I like that a lot. Correct. I think that's, yeah. that's what it felt like that you did. And it never felt... The Ballad of Black Tom never feels like you're just, you know, it's not a Lovecraft pastiche. You know, it's not a, yeah. mm-hmm. it's not, it's not anything like that. It's not, it's not riding his coattails. It's a, it's a direct standing in opposition response to exactly what was wrong with his work. And in my opinion, the, the best thing about it is that <laughs> you outdid the original. Like you not only responded to it, but now it's a better story. So, you know, if he was still around, which that by book. the way, is an incredible feat. One hundred percent, an incredible feat. Yeah. Congratulations to you on that. I, I have one. I appreciate that very asked. much. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, please take all the accolades because it's, <laughs> it's necessary. When when my kids eventually read your book, I'm going to say I had a conversation with this person. Ah, that's where you kind. need to read it again. And that's that's something. I mean, I have kids at about your kid's age. I two boys, yeah. and I'm really excited that this type of thing is now available for them to, because they're probably, he's got, he's probably going to want to read Lovecraft. I know that. I know that he going to be somebody that introduces him to him. He's going to, he hasn't read it yet, but he's going to experience that, but he's going to have something else on the other side of that door to, to bring almost, almost attached, but not attached mm-hmm. to those particular books and that way of thought and showing the yeah. other side of that and him being a biracial kid. I mean, you can't get any better than that. Yeah. You can't, yeah. you can't get wow. any better to see two sides of that story. Absolutely. You can't get any better than that. And I, and congratulations to you for that. And thank you, thank you for providing that for us. Yes, to have. definitely. So I guess we're, we're about at time guys. So Victor Laval, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Talk we about- appreciate it. Yeah, love hearing about your Ask work was a and blast. about your takes on problematic favorites. I, we're, it's something everybody's still wrestling with, and we're getting there. And that's uh, really enjoy having your your insight on it and your perspective. Um, where can people find you? Uh, you got want to tell people where to find you online on Twitter, or on the web, or anything? Sure, uh, come to uh, if you want to find me online. Uh, I'm on Twitter is probably the place I'm most active. It's just uh, Victor Laval. I'm just at Victor Laval, uh, okay. and it's mostly. 
dad jokes, Black Lives Matter posts, um, a bunch of other things where I yell and scream about people. And occasionally, uh, <laughs> nice. you know, I highlight somebody else's work. Uh, nice. If any of that sounds interesting, I'll be there. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, people, go check him out and pick up his books, too. We're going to take all the uh, all of his works, his bibliography, we're going to have in the show notes to this episode. So when you're done listening, hop over there, click those links, and buy some books. Um, Victor, we're going to let you get on uh, get on about your life. And uh, once again, we appreciate it very much, and we will talk to you later. Really man. appreciate Thanks. it. Thank you. Hey, it was very such much, a good Victor. time. Such a good time. Pleasure. All right. Pleasure. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Excellent, wow. Rob. Wow, well, thank, wow, wow, wow. Thank you as well for <laughs> staying and having this. Uh, I, I appreciate every time that you uh, do all the mastering for us and everything. Like, I know you're going to make uh, this. The pleasures. Make this sound good. <laughs> The pleasure is all on this side of the, of the table, my friend. Uh, I really enjoy doing this. This is fantastic. I hope that everyone else enjoyed listening. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for downloading. We appreciate the support. We appreciate Victor coming on and, and having a discussion with us. I appreciate Jesse. I appreciate myself <laughs> a little bit. I appreciate everything. And, and this was Gratitude fantastic. all over the place. Yes. All Thanks, everybody, place, for listening. We hope you have enjoyed it, and uh, you can subscribe to our uh, to this podcast. There's a bunch of different ways to do it. We're up on Spotify, Stitcher. We should be up on Apple Podcasts uh, pretty soon. You can find us pretty right. much anywhere or go to glitchypancakes.com. We can just stream the episode straight from there, too. Um, follow us right. on you Twitter. Can, can... Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. You're good. Right. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, we are at Glitchy Pancakes. And uh, you can email us if you have questions, suggestions, comments. You can always email us at cakespod at gmail.com. That's how to find mm-hmm. us. And uh, thank you for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Hold on one second. I'm not letting you go yet. Okay, you can fine. Find me on Twitter at EI Blackout. And you can find Jesse. Oh, that's I knew I was going to forget that. Jesse underscore oh, we, A underscore Adams on Twitter. We just got through talking to Victor Laval. We're going to forget things. That was awesome. Yeah, that was <laughs> It's going to happen, dude. Hey, it's going to happen. One, one day I'll remember to promote myself. I will, I will figure this out. <laughs> right, right. Anyway, that's our discussions. info. Yeah, don't forget to check the show notes uh, for all the links that we've talked about, all the recommendations. So that i believe unless you got anything else rob i think that's it this nope, time and nope. we'll, uh, no more just... interruptions i appreciate it you guys have a nice day thank you for listening and we hope you have a, a nice heaping helping pile of glitchy pancakes and you're full thank you for for joining us thank you thank you bye everybody bye bye <laughs>